This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. In my talk tonight on uh, philosophy uh, in a time of crisis, I'm going to begin by talking a little bit about the time of crisis, trying to identify what I mean by that. I'm then going to move into thinking more philosophically about maybe some of the root causes and uh, issues behind our present time of crisis. And I'm going to try my hand at offering uh, some some tentative ways forward in the midst of our crisis. So that's kind of the trajectory, we're, the trajectory that we're going to be traversing tonight. Uh, there will be a poem at one point, so you can look forward to that. Um, and there'll be a lot of thinking, I hope, that we do along the way. The, the chief... I, I don't have a solution. If you came here looking for a solution, sorry, I'm sorry. I, I don't think we can give you your money back, but that's, uh, that's that. Um, I don't have a solution, but I, I do have, I think, an intuition about the kinds of practices we need to be doing together uh, in this time. And I hope that, those, I hope that thinking together uh, may begin to produce the possibility of something new coming to our minds, something new coming to our culture. I'm going to, later on tonight, just to give you a preview, uh, one of the people I'm going to talk a, a small bit about is this fantastic uh, woman, Hannah Arendt, who, when thinking about philosophy and politics, coined the term natality to speak about the emergence of something new into discourse, something new into conversation. Uh, and natality is an event that only, open, that only happens when the human spirit is engaged vulnerably with, without trying to control the future or to base itself on the certainties of the past. But in a vulnerable sharing of ourselves with one another, Arendt believed something new could genuinely come forward. And she thought, she thought that was what true politics was. Uh, so that's one of the hopeful things we'll get to, and I wanted to give you a preview of that because it's going to get kind of dour now for, for a little bit. The language of crisis is everywhere, democratic, financial, social, cultural, technological, and of course, ecological. The world has always known its traumas, but arguably the crises of our time reflect more than the normal ups and downs of history. We find ourselves rather in an age of metacrisis, one in which many of our basic assumptions and ways of being are revealed to be fundamentally at odds, both with themselves and with reality. Nowhere is this more evident than in looking at the issue of ecological devastation on a planetary scale. Earlier this week, maybe you saw this, the United Nations Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, the IPBES, released a devastating landmark study on biodiversity across the earth. Almost none of what is chronicled in this report is new, but what is new is the way in which this massive work collects and chronicles the threats to biodiversity in one document. Alongside the IPCC report of 2018, the, IPBS, BB, the IPBES report gives us the most exhaustive scientific consensus on the state of the planet ever compiled. And it's justly alarming. Because of human activity, we find ourselves in the midst of the Earth's sixth great extinction crisis. One million animal and plant species are now threatened with extinction, many within decades, more than ever before in human history. Whole ecosystems, entire species of wild creatures and local breeds of domesticated plants and animals are jeopardized, many disappearing. 
One in four current species are threatened with extinction. Global wild mammal biomass is down 82%, and 87% of wetlands have been lost. In just the last half century, humans transformed something like 50% of the surface of the planet. It's amazing. We consume nearly a quarter of the biosphere's annual production of biomass, and we catch and utilize more than half of all accessible fresh water. These statistics are representative. The entire report goes on and on and on like this. And they're directly attributable to human activity, the primary culprit being changes in the scale and type of our land and sea use, followed by direct exploitation of organisms, and only then by the old environmentalist triumvirate of climate change, pollution, and invasive species. The IPBS, the IPBS report and the IPCC report add new force to a claim that scholars and scientists have been making for nearly two decades now, namely that human domination of the terrestrial world has become so inescapable that we must now recognize that we have left the relative climactic stability of the Holocene and entered a new geological epoch, often known today as the Anthropocene. This new geological age is viewed as the period during which human activity has become the dominant influence on Earth's systems, species, climate, and environment. Now, in the face of all of this, it might seem absurd to suggest that the humanities, let alone philosophy, could have anything to say about such an intractably material situation as the contemporary ecological crisis. Surely, only science can save us now. Yet it can be argued that this crisis is not only a technical and scientific crisis, but also a crisis of human collective activity or politics. And so our best response to this crisis depends crucially upon human commitment, imagination, and a change of vision. Indeed, the IPBES report uh, itself points to the urgency of including diverse value systems, interests, and worldviews, not least those of indigenous peoples and traditions, when formulating policies and actions in response to the crisis of our garden planet. The paradox of the Anthropocene is this. Human agency is now responsible for fundamentally transforming the biogeochemistry of the Earth, while at the same time we seem thus far incapable of altering the shape of our collective activities. We are tragically responsible, and we can't seem to do anything about it. Might this paradox seem intractable only because basic ontological, ethical, and aesthetic assumptions have gone unquestioned? If so, doesn't this cry out for a philosophical response? So what I want to do with my time this evening is think with you about the role that philosophy might play in diagnosing deeper causes of our contemporary crisis and in helping to empower our search for new ways of imagining and cultivating the human being as a mutually enhancing member of the Earth community. So let's begin by trying to get a bit clearer on the crises within which we find ourselves. Defining what the Anthropocene means is pretty controversial. Whatever else it means, it refers to the enormous influence of human beings on the entire terrestrial system. As is well known, human activity has increasingly displaced the more-than-human world to the point that we have left such a mark, and our presence has grown so ubiquitous that we are now rightly described as a geologic agent. Nearly 20 years ago, in response to this dawning realization, the Dutch atmospheric chemist Paul Crutzen stood up at a conference of the International Geosphere, Bio the International Geosphere Biosphere Program in Mexico and boldly claimed that we are no longer living in the Holocene, but, as he said, we're living in the Anthropocene because the human, the, anthropo, the anthropos, has become a geo-force. Dating this epoch has always been controversial. Crutzen initially proposed the invention of the steam engine for the advent of the new epoch, not least because emissions from steam engines can be seen in the elevated levels of carbon found in air bubbles trapped in 18th century polar ice packs. Others have argued that the Anthropocene commenced with the great acceleration of the mid-20th century, or with the advent of the or with the advent of agriculture somewhere around 10,000 BCE. Timothy Morton, for instance, points to what he calls agrologistics, which, diagnose, which he diagnoses as both a material practice centered upon stable farming and a way of thinking centered on control, rationality, linear thought, and technology, ways that have led indefatigably to our current emergency. 
whenever this new period began, it's important for us to recognize that this that this entwining of physical effect and cultural practice is a part of it. The fact that frozen air bubbles in the remotest parts of the Earth's surface bear chemical witness to human activity is significant not only on the physico-chemical level, but also because it's a sign of much broader cultural and social transformations undertaken by significant portions of the human population. The philosopher Henri Bergson had intimated this already over a century ago. As Bergson wrote in Creative Evolution, As regards human intelligence, it has not been sufficiently noted that mechanical invention has been from the first its essential feature, that even today, our social life gravitates around the manufacture and use of artificial instruments, that the inventions which strew the road of progress have also traced its direction. And then he says this, This we hardly realize because it takes us longer to change ourselves than to change our tools. I want to repeat that. This we hardly realize, because it takes us longer to change ourselves than to change our tools. Our individual and even social habits, he continues, survive a good while the circumstances for which they were made, so that the ultimate effects of an invention are not observed until its novelty is already out of sight. A century has elapsed since the invention of the steam engine, and we are only just beginning to feel the depths of the shock that it gave us. But the revolution it has affected in industry has nevertheless upset human relations altogether. New ideas, Bergson says, are arising. New feelings are on the way to flower. In thousands of years, when seen from the distance, only the broad lines of the present age will still be visible. Our wars and our revolutions will count for little, even supposing they are remembered at all. But the steam engine and the procession of inventions of every kind that accompanied it will perhaps be spoken of as we speak of the bronze or the chipped stone or of prehistoric times. It will serve to define an age. Now Bergson was profoundly right. The new human conquest of fire through the thermodynamic machine, the steam engine, transformed everything. The steam engine was so powerful a tool in comparison with all that had gone before that it led to massive projects of coal extraction, expansion, capital accumulation, and eventually to the Industrial Revolution and its assorted consequences, as we now know, including massive anthropogenic climate change and ecological devastation. But in a sense, Bergson was also profoundly wrong, for the accelerated pace of transformation unleashed with the steam engine means that almost certainly no future historians will speak of the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, and the Steam Age. After the steam engine came the automobile, the era of mass production, the atomic age, the information age, the digital age, and it goes on. Throughout all of these transformations, the human impact on Earth systems and the disruption of ways of life culturally has continued apace. Whenever this new epoch began, whichever markers you select as a criteria to identify it, whatever you choose to call it, we are increasingly waking up to the fact that something unprecedented in human history is occurring. How do we respond in the face of such uncertainty? Now, one of our friends here at CIS, Joanna Macy, has long advocated for a response that consists of at least three dimensions. We need holding actions that slow the damage being done to Earth and its creatures. This is the work of environmental activism, from youth for climate strikes the world over, to whistleblowing, to direct actions and occupations like those that took place and are taking place at Standing Rock. This important work can save lives, species, communities, and so forth. But it won't halt the advent of the Anthropocene. We need, as the IPBES report recognized, to work towards deep cultural transformation as well to analyze the problems of the industrial growth economy and to create new collaborative, fecund, and ecological structures of planetary cooperation that can shape human lives in partnership with the natural processes of the Earth. But our challenge is even deeper than this. We don't yet know what these new structures will be, and we don't know how to sustain them. Indeed, even if we did know what, the new, what new structures could work, we can't just implement them through force. They will only succeed if they're sustained by and feed back into deeply embodied values consonant with a new ecological way of life. This is the work not of holding actions, nor the transformation of structures, but rather the transformation of consciousness and perception. And this is especially where philosophy and the humanities have a role to play. 
So let's try to get philosophical about this. Whatever else it may mean, for many leading thinkers, the discussion about the Anthropocene is bound up with a discussion about the scope and magnitude about the human ability either to alter or even to control the Earth's system. It is about the extension, therefore, of human technical capacities to hitherto unprecedented degrees. We're not talking just about a change in culture akin to what took place in the passage from the Middle Ages to modernity, or from the Paleolithic to the Neolithic, for that matter. Because what we're confronting is a change not merely in human worlds, but in the earth itself, in the atmosphere, the cryospheres, and the biosphere. But as I already indicated, the paradox and the pathos of all of this is that human agency is now recognized as responsible for this massive transformation, while at the same time we seem utterly incapable of controlling our collective behavior. Philosophers call this an aporia by which we mean a seemingly irresolvable internal contradiction, a logical perplexity, literally an impasse, a place where there is no way, a poros. Almost all of Plato's earliest dialogues end aporetically, meaning that the dialogue wraps up with the interlocutors perplexed, unable to resolve the question at issue. I don't think Plato meant this to produce general skepticism in his readers, but rather hoped that it would spur deeper inquiry, more profound philosophical questioning of what is otherwise taken for granted, perhaps even a transformation of the interlocutors themselves. What we seem to have taken for granted in the centuries leading to our present uh, crisis, I want to suggest, is the radical discontinuity of the human and other-than-human modes of being. In other words, I'm claiming that one source of our crisis is a skewed relationship between the cultural and the natural, what the Greeks called nomos and phusis, uh, law and nature, conceptions that have set the deep, imaginative, unconscious parameters for our thinking for at least 300 years, parameters that lock us into a destructive shuttle that cannot but lead to our collective crises. Perhaps you've heard something like this before. The great error that we've made is the bifurcation of the world, what I'm calling tonight the separation of nature and culture, another word for which might be alienation, the psychological, cultural, political, and imaginative situation in which we find ourselves increasingly alienated both from nature and from our primal experiences of reality. Nearly all of our contemporary cultural institutions, whether political, religious, economic, or intellectual, have reinforced this divide. Indeed, the problem is so deep that even many of our best efforts at environmental action, however needful in the short term, prove unsustainable in the long term precisely because they perpetuate this deep tendency to bifurcate the world and so to separate us from it. You might think of it this way. Ever since their emergence in the 19th century, questions of environmental and ecological ethics have regularly appealed to a unified concept of nature as a given, well-ordered, moral and biophysical whole that must be saved, returned to, managed, or preserved. At the formal level, that is, in theory or in thought, this peculiarly modern understanding trades on a disjunctive account of nature. Nature especially in what is held to be its ideal state of wilderness, is all that is other than culture. Materially, at the level of practice and policy, such appeals are seen in environmentalist strategies that aim to draw boundaries between nature and the human in order to create a preserve or a protected space from the likely corrupting influence of human technology and culture making. Although especially pronounced in modernity, this idea of nature as essentially corrupted by the supplement of culture is a venerable one. It goes back at least to Ovid and Hesiod, and it's often operative on both sides of the environmental debate. Whether nature is something to be mastered and possessed, or protected and preserved, it's still nature conceived of in contrast to human culture. Now, such appeals are widespread, but can they be sustained in the face of critical inquiry, and should they? Bruno Latour, for one, has argued powerfully to the contrary. For Latour, the critique of nature is bound up with a critique of modernity. Modernity defines itself by establishing a supposedly absolute dualism between nature and society, an establishment accomplished by the elevation of the human subject out of nature and into the theoretically transcendent realm of culture. Many of us are familiar 
with accounts of modernity that make some such Cartesian or Kantian dualism central to the identity of the modern. What Latour adds to this common story, however, is a strong account of how this modern aspiration to purify the realms of nature and culture both came about and how it has always been undone by the equally modern aspiration illicitly to mix these two realms. Thus, modernity is marked not by one, but by two fundamentally conflicting practices that Latour calls purification and translation. In purification, moderns seek through experimental and analytic means to construct a nature entirely separate from culture and subjectivity. While in translation, or what he also sometimes calls hybridization, moderns bring these supposedly pure spheres in new hybrid, together in new hybrid assemblages of nature and culture. But the thing about these hybrids is they remain invisible to modern eyes. Modernity understands itself only in terms of the first procedure, that is, in terms of purification. It's always trying to separate nature and culture and keep them separate. It doesn't see the hybrids proliferating underneath the surface. This is the story we all know. Modernity purifies the world. It separates the value spheres of the good, the true, and the beautiful, and so frees us from antique superstition. The earth no longer groans, trees no longer speak, and the heavens no longer dictate our moods, nor the proper construction of the republic. Nature exists in its pure, brute calculability, mute, stupid, and subject to the laws of mechanical necessity. Thus nature is scoured of any human or personal trace, while for its part a new Promethean humanity discovers itself as utterly free from the constraints of nature. What it means to be modern is to distill finally nature from culture, the discursive from the real, the social, linguistic, and constructed, from the natural, the material, and the given. The error of pre-modern people, so this story goes, was to believe in a seamless fabric of nature and culture. Political arrangements were believed not only to model, but also to follow the heavens. Signatures were spread throughout the world of nature, the moon somehow connected to the growing of seeds or the metal silver, the sun for its part sympathetic to gold, our own bodies and moods composed of the four elements that make up our temperaments, a world of cosmos, psyche, and politeia, all mixed, confused, But moderns, it is said, put an end to this confusion. As Latour puts it, moderns see themselves as having cut the Gordian knot with a well-honed sword. The shaft is broken. On the left, they've put knowledge of things. On the right, power and human politics. As Latour develops his account, he shows that the modern... The modern process of purification is a bit more complex still. Modernity separates, horizontally as it were, nature from culture but it also vertically separates nature and culture from divinity and spirits, a divinity that's now crossed out because incapable of ever appearing within a world entirely divided between nature and culture. There's no room for gods, spirits, elemental beings, dakinis, in a world that's divided between nature and culture. Where do they fit, right? So modernity is thus premised on this double process of separation, humans from non-humans and above from below. Both vertically and horizontally, a reified concept of nature is one of the primary culprits. Of course, Latour insists that we've never in fact been modern, in the sense that we've never in fact purified nature and culture. But this leads to the worry that neither maybe have we ever known nature at all. The very account of, the very concept of nature may be a will of the wisp, This account becomes even more powerful when read alongside the great transformations to the Earth's systems we've been discussing earlier tonight. The growing awareness that human influence is now so ubiquitous upon the surface of the Earth that, strictly speaking, untrammeled nature no longer exists has led a number of activists to speak of the Anthropocene as the end of nature and is now often spoken of, uh, on this planet at least, uh, we've become the gatekeepers of nature. The philosopher Slavoj Žižek, for example, argues that the situation is even more extreme than this. Žižek says it's not only that humanity has become a ubiquitous presence and a geological force, but also that we've reached into the previously hidden depths of nature and, as it were, taken control. As Žižek writes, the main consequence of the scientific breakthroughs in biogenetics is the end of nature. Once we know the rules of its construction, natural organisms are transformed into objects amenable to manipulation. Nature is no longer natural, 
the reliable, dense background of our lives, it now appears as a fragile mechanism which can at any point explode in a catastrophic manner. For Zizek, the paradigm case of this is biogenetics, which reduces the human psyche itself to an object of manipulation. Here's how Zizek puts it. He says, by reducing the human to just another natural object whose properties can be manipulated, what we lose is not only humanity, but nature itself. Zizek is not the first to note this. Already in the late 1960s, Owen Barfield argued that the radical experience of alienation proceeds in three phases. The alienation or radical separation of human culture from given nature, followed by the alienation of human beings from their bodies, and finally, the alienation of human beings from their minds. As Barfield writes, the vaunted progress of knowledge, which has been going on since the 17th century, has been progress in alienation. Now, you might know that word alienation uh, from like Marxist theory. Barfield's not talking about Marxist theory, but there's a connection between the kind of metaphysical alienation that he's describing and the kind of social and economic alienation, I think, that Marx is describing. Anyway, Barfield continues. The alienation, uh, this is... The progress since the 17th century has been progress in alienation. The alienation first of nature from humanity, which the exclusive pursuit of objectivity in science entails, was the first stage. Not science itself, the exclusive pursuit of objectivity in the name of science, right? It's the exclusive pursuit of third-person facts as the only true things, to the exclusion of other kinds of investigation, other kinds of comportment to the world. That was the first uh, kind of alienation. And it was followed with the acceptance of the human himself as a part of nature so alienated, the alienation of the human being from himself. This final and fatal step in reductionism occurred in two stages. First, the human body, and then the human mind. Newton's approach to nature was already, by contrast with older scientific traditions, a form of behaviorism. And what has since followed has been its extension from astronomy and physics into physiology and ultimately psychology, he says. So what does he mean by this? Here's what I think he's getting at. By reducing nature to a story of particles and their relations, or to atomic forces and nomological regularities, and so by removing from the world its dynamic, vital, and sold meaning, we seem to discover ourselves in a vast material machine subject either to mechanical or stochastic laws rather than in a cosmos replete with inescapable meaning. But having discovered that we dwell in such a universe, we eventually discover that the body, too, is subject to these very modes of mechanical understanding, at which point the very life of the body becomes essentially unintelligible, and we begin to suspect that maybe we're nothing but anticipatory corpses walking around. (laughs) Finally, we turn the analysis back on the very consciousness doing the analyzing, and we dissolve our very selves into the pulverized bits of the universe to which we first reduced everything else. One of Barfield's closest friends, the author C.S. Lewis, borrowed this theme from Barfield in his classic work, The Abolition of Man. As Lewis put it, we reduce things to mere nature in order that we may conquer them. We are always conquering nature, because nature, in quotes, is the name for what we have to some extent conquered. The price of conquest is to treat a thing as mere nature, Every conquest over nature increases her domain. The stars do not become nature till we can weigh and measure them. The soul does not become nature till we can psychoanalyze her. With the horrors of National Socialism in mind, Lewis imagined that the end point of this process would finally be the conquering of the human itself, the abolition of the human. For once we reduce our species to mere nature, we lose both nature and humanity. But where Lewis and Barfield lament this final magician's Barfield, I mean, this final magician's bargain, give up our soul, get power in return, Zizek affirms it in the name of a material ecology without nature. The ultimate obstacle to protecting nature, Zizek says, is the very notion of nature we rely on. For Zizek, the post-human future that modern science and technology and indeed the Anthropocene have opened to us conclusively demonstrates the falseness of the old picture of nature, the picture that held us captive when we also believed in humanity. We must recognize that the apocalypse has already happened, he says. Nature is no more. The human is no more. These never were anything other than ideological fantasies, big others that allowed us to sleep. 
In Zizek's bleak reading of Hegel, we're not asked to pacify the brutal ontological gap between subjects and objects, but to universalize this condition of alienation. It is not only we who are separated from all things, but all things are separated in just this radical way from everything else. The only overcoming of alienation for Zizek is reconciliation to the universality of alienation. Everything is alienated from everything else. Uh, For many, Zizek's way of responding to the contemporary crisis, which turns out not so much to be a crisis as a revelation of the deep ontological catastrophe at the heart of all being, uh, for a lot of people today, this has a lot of appeal, not least because it's frank gloominess Disgust and horror seem appropriate with the magnitude of the realities confronting us. But what does it leave us with? Arguably, in the name of getting rid of nature, it merely returns us to naturalism in its starkest form. All that we should act upon are the deliverances of scientific and philosophical reason and the demands of irrational politics. There's no extra-linguistic whole which might bestow value beyond the brutally political upon creatures, In relinquishing nature, there's no critique of the mathematical, calculative, and manipulative comportment to the contingencies of nature's order. And for that matter, why should we trust the deliverances of our reason if our minds, too, are so catastrophically alienated? If our minds participate in no world of meaning, no basic source of intelligibility and rightness, then what justifies the extraordinary intellectual confidence required in order to believe in the meaninglessness of the world? So although one route beyond the apparent aporia of nature and culture in the Anthropocene is to dissolve both nature and the human, this path has its drawbacks, not least insofar as it only overcomes the sequestering of meaning in human culture by denying the ultimate existence of meaning altogether. Might we instead overcome the bifurcation not by dissolving the contraries of nature and human culture, but rather by showing their deep relation to one another? In other words, might we find a way beyond their opposition through a renewed comportment to a cosmos suffused with meaning? Or is a suggestion like that just a naive sort of romanticism? Generalizing rather broadly, Barfield, for his part, thinks that we can contrast what he calls our current mindscape with the mindscape that prevailed for roughly 2,500 years, from, say, the Axial Age to the Scientific Revolution. The pre-modern view, which differs radically among its various adherents, was nevertheless largely marked by an assumed intercommunion between the human being and nature, a nuptial relationship of mind and matter, or macrocosm and microcosm, that refused to render nature merely passive and inert in contrast with the active shaping power, for example, of the human spirit. Nature was understood in this pre-modern view as active, as fusis, as that which gives birth, which brings into being, life itself being a particularly acute instance of this dynamism, and mind its even deeper realization or intensification, not separate from nature, but nature folding over itself in another layer of intensity. That world, that cosmological imaginary, comes to something like a cultural halt in the 17th or 18th centuries. You can blame Descartes for it if you want to, but I think he's probably more of a Richter scale than an earthquake in this transformation which had been prepared for in a number of ways, not least through huge transformations of thought, culture, and practice that took place throughout the late medieval period. However it came about, by the turn of the 18th and 19th centuries, the alienation of mind and matter, value and fact, interiority and exteriority, had become what Barfield calls the subliminal reality principle of vast numbers of educated people in the West. Lately, some scholars have been pushing back against this whole narrative of alienation and disenchantment, rightly pointing out that a variety of exoteric and esoteric practices, from homeopathy to spiritualism to religious revivalism to parapsychology and so forth, have flourished in modernity. It's true, that's true enough, but the larger point is that an alienated culture can permit such infractions so long as essential alienation continues as a subliminal cultural conviction. At the base of the largely hegemonic Western imagination, Barfield argues there's a mental habit that takes for granted for all practical purposes and for most theoretical ones that the human psyche is intrinsically alienated from matter. In other words, 
Barfield compellingly shows how this unfolding alienation is inscribed into the... Uh, sorry, in other works, Barfield compellingly shows how this unfolding alienation is inscribed even into the changing shapes of our words themselves. And so inscribed into the very tools that we might otherwise use to think about or even resist this alienation. It thus presents itself as, he puts it, as a kind of common sense or a reality principle. Feel free to believe whatever you like, but your imagination belongs to the forces of alienation. The three essential characteristics of this alienated imagination can be given as follows. Nature, one, nature is an objective system that can only be manipulated from without. Philosophically, this is the reduction of nature to mechanism and causality to efficiency. Two, every human being is a separate part of nature so described. And three, human minds, if they're anything more than illusions or complex neurological algorithms, can at best communicate with one another only through some physical or material medium. If you followed me this far, you can see that this same aporia of alienation the bifurcation of nature and culture that gives rise to the Anthropocene is a genetic factor not only in our cascading ecological crises, but is also, as becomes daily ever more apparent, a factor in our proliferating crises of human collectivity, politics, sociality, and consciousness. I mentioned Joanna Macy's insight earlier that, the social, stru- that social structures require corresponding values, ethical energies, and spiritual visions to uphold them. Put more classically, one can say that social order requires a vision of the common good, a vision towards which the community looks, and that must be continually renewed if the community is to be sustained. In many pre-modern societies, and for some that continue today, comportment to the common good is largely given through traditional symbolic identities, initiations, and rituals. Under modernity, this relationship to the common good is supposed to be given through education and higher culture. Now, colonialist forms of scholarship used to contrast these two modes of acquiring a vision of the common good. The traditional, the symbolic, or the primitive was opposed to the sophisticated, the educative, or the civilized. These two different different modes of enculturation were contrasted, but to many of us, it's now apparent that, in fact, healthy societies and healthy individuals require both. We need forms of traditional symbolic belonging and the resources of critical high culture to mutually challenge, transform, and support one another. But thoroughgoing alienation destroys both modes of acquiring a relationship to the common good. The situation in which we find ourselves today, accordingly, is one in which both folk and high culture are effectively silenced, leaving the space open for the hegemony of mass persuasion through the now familiar complex of technology, bureaucracy, advertising media, and a digital landscape increasingly captured by practices of surveillance capitalism. Writing like Barfield and Lewis in the wake of World War II, the German-Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt warned about such an occurrence in a marvelous text, The Human Condition. She opens The Human Condition with this striking account of the Soviet Union's launch of Sputnik. In 1957, she says, an earth-born object made by man was launched into the universe where for some weeks it circled the earth according to the same laws of gravitation that swing and keep in motion the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Arendt sees this event as second in importance to no other, not even to the splitting of the atom, she says. With the launch of the first satellite, human beings could now look skyward and see a thing of our own making. And this sight thrilled us because it seemed to promise that we too could take our place in the heavens. As Arendt writes, the immediate reaction expressed on the spur of the moment was relief about the first step toward escape from men's imprisonment to the earth. She's quoting an American reporter there. And this strange statement, far from being the accidental slip of some American reporter, unwittingly echoed the extraordinary line which Arendt writes more than 20 years ago had been carved on the funeral obelisk of one of Russia's great scientists. Mankind will not remain bound to the earth forever. Arendt's prescient study of the human condition is more precisely a study of the human condition in light of its transformation through technology and scientific rationality the very motors of the Anthropocene. Sputnik is, even more impo- Sputnik is more important even than the dark horror of the atomic bomb. Because while the mushroom cloud terrifies us, the satellite entices us. 
The satellite entices us into believing that technology and science can solve the problems of human division, the problem of politics, the problem of learning to search together for the common good. She sees in Sputnik the shiny side of what we've been discussing under the category of alienation. The alienated imagination relinquishes the human responsibility to deliberate about our responsibilities, opting instead to allow machines, bureaucracies, and technocracies to do our thinking for us. It's astounding how she saw already that depoliticization follows scientific reductionism and that both lead to Promethean dreams of escaping the earth. So many of our efforts more recently to deal with the environmental crisis seem to have followed this same pattern. They've looked for solutions in literally out-of-this-world technologies on the one hand and globalized bureaucracies on the other, when what we desperately need is to think about what we're doing, where we are, and who we want to be, to think, in other words, about the common good, the common ground. Such thinking is hard to undertake in times of crisis because thinking about what we are doing, reflection through the human media of writing, speech, drama, art, and music, is quite literally indefensible. Reflection doesn't have the guarantee of precedent or outcome. But Arendt argues that such activities of the human spirit, such indefensible activities, because they don't provide us a defense, such activities are the only activities through which the genuinely unanticipated and new can appear. These are the pursuits through which natality happens, and beings act together to create the truly unexpected. Without a collective pursuit of the common good, there can be no politics, no natality, and so no renewal. In a recent essay, Bruno Latour argues that today's struggles can no longer be mapped according to the old politics of left and right, which he calls globe and land, somewhat akin to what I referred to earlier as critical high culture and traditional symbolic identity. For Latour, the Anthropocene has changed all of that. There is no abstract globe or planetary order that corresponds to sort of modern dreams of unlimited progress. And there is no old land of tradition to which we might return. Latour thinks these old political alignments, he calls them attractors, have been replaced today with two new attractors, one rooted in the earth, territory in the sense of the terrestrial, a recognition that humans, territory in the sense of the terrestrial. And then another one, uh, a comportment to the terrestrial could be what a new search for the common good, the common ground might look like. Uh, This is what Latour argues. But in opposition to the terrestrial, which he sees as this tractor calling forth a new search for the common good, in opposition to the terrestrial, there's what he calls the out of this world. You can think here of Arendt Sputnik, He has in mind those who no longer believe that a common good exists, and so seek their own profits and their own fantasies, fantasies of denying climate change, or fantasies of collecting profit and protection to the detriment of everyone else. It's the abandonment of the search for a common ground, the abandonment for a common collective attraction to a good beyond ourselves. I think Arendt's account of the extraterrestrial dream inspired by Sputnik is extremely relevant here. We can only renew our seeking after the common terrestrial good if we can relinquish the lures of alienation. All right, let me add one final philosopher to the mix. Uh, There's a French philosopher named Bernard Stiegler. He's the only philosopher I know who became a philosopher after being incarcerated for armed robbery. Uh, Stiegler is one of the most important philosophers thinking about technology today. And while his work is difficult, it's well worth the effort. Stiegler writes, the question of politics is essentially that of the relation to the other in a feeling together or sympathy. But this is what alienation roots out. Remember Barfield's claim that minds, if they're anything more than illusions, can at best communicate with one another through some physical or material medium. But Stiegler is saying that politics is, the essence of politics is feeling together, sympathy. As he goes on, the problem of politics is of knowing how to be together, to live together, to stand each other, and to stand together, across, and starting from our singularities, much more profound than our differences, and beyond our conflicts of interest. Politics is the art of securing the unity of the state in its desire for a common future, in its individuation, its singularity, as becoming one. Stiegler says, such a desire assumes a common aesthetic ground. Being together 
is feeling together. A political community is therefore a community of feeling. If we are unable to love things together, landscapes, towns, objects, works, languages, etc., then we cannot love ourselves. This, he says rightly, is the meaning of philia in Aristotle. Loving ourselves is loving together things other than ourselves. As Arendt would say, this is the realm of the human spirit, the genuinely political. But our prevailing pseudo-politics relegates all such questions to the privacy of personal decision, just as modernity had previously relegated all religious and spiritual knowledge to the privacy of individual belief. So in the 20th century, rather than thinking together and feeling together about what we are doing and what we wish to do, we tried to reduce politics to bureaucracy and procedure. This is why state and market systems can so easily ignore all that falls outside their remit, including so-called environmental externalities, because they've all constructed for themselves a kind of metaphysics uh, of, it's, it's really a kind of metaphysics of power in which uh, economy and bureaucracy appear as the only goods, right? If all you can see is economy and bureaucracy, if all you can see is the end product, then you can't see these values. You can't see the things that call forth common affection together. And it makes sense. If nature and culture are entirely diverse, divorced, or if there's just a reductionist nature amenable to purely scientific description, then there are no given reasons to respect the sociality of other humans and the oikonomia of the entire terrestrial household. And so trespass against others can only be prevented by an increasing array of legislation, sanction, and policing. It's all undertaken supposedly for the sake of health and safety, which Francis Bacon called at the outset of the modern, modern project the elevation of man's estate. But it's still bureaucracy and power. Likewise, the riot of diverse private beliefs can, has to be tamed by a kind of knowledge industry aiming at the production of stable facts primarily secured through technological criteria of prediction and control. So we find ourselves in a world that increasingly sees the extension of technological manipulation into every sphere of life, both by government and by industry, especially the industry that surrounds us here in the Bay Area. Now, this is all akin to what Barfield, Lewis, and Arendt, in her own way, saw on the horizon. Barfield suggests that after the alienation of culture and nature, and the alienation of human beings from their bodies, we end finally at the alienation of human beings from their souls, their minds, their desires. But maybe there's a way around that. One of the insights that Barfield learned from the Romantics is that the unconscious can be understood in a non-obscurantist manner as the deep imagination. We often think of the imagination as something subject to our control, our wills. So we talk about using our imagination. But no pre-modern thinker thought that way, and neither did the best of the Romantics in the early 19th century. Coleridge, for example, calls that shallower type of the imagination the fancy. The deep imagination, he says, is something far more profound. The imagination, says Coleridge, I consider either as primary or secondary. The primary imagination I hold to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception and a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. You see that? The deep imagination structures your very experience of the world. It is the life and power behind, behind the extraordinary mystery of conscious perception in all of its vivacity and force. The secondary imagination, says Coleridge, is an echo of the former, coexisting with the conscious will, yet still as identical with the primary in the kind of its agency and differing only in degree in the mode of its operation. This is, what, this is what creativity uses. This is what artistic creati- real artistic creativity uh, works with. The rich experience of real poetry and art is a work of the imagination and not what Coleridge calls the fancy alone. But so also is the deep encounter with other beings, the landscape, the seasons, the more than human world with whom we share breath and life and wonder. We can speak about all of this as aesthetics, the realm of aesthesis or perception which includes but is not reducible to the realm of the beautiful. Now, Stiegler, who I mentioned a moment ago, he writes a lot about what he calls aesthetic experience, which he defines, I think rightly, as essentially transformative. For Stiegler, a genuine aesthetic experience, this includes work of art, works of art, but it also includes aesthesis, perception more widely. A genuine aesthetic experience gives rise to something like desire, 
as a combination of belief and doubt, or as Plato would have it, of poros and pania, wealth and want. This means that a thesis is always out ahead of what can be proven. It's this, the, the, the desire that accompanies genuine aesthesis, that accompanies genuine perception, genuine encounter with a beautiful object, pulls you into a realm where that which is known exceeds what is or can even be known. A condition of mystery that resides in and constitutes the aesthetic object and the aesthetic experience as an aesthetic experience. Uh, if, if you know your... Well, let's not talk about Kant. Uh, <laughs> There's something transformative to genuine aesthetic experience. We learn something. We become something else. I promised you a poem, so the one I have in mind here is, is Archaic Torso of Apollo by Rilke. Maybe some of you know it. Rilke writes, staring at this, this statue, this archaic torso, we cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit, and yet his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside, like a lamp in which his gaze is now turned low gleams in all its power otherwise the curved breast could not dazzle you so nor could a smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared otherwise this stone would seem defaced beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast's fur would not from all the borders of itself burst like a star for here there is no place that does not see you you must change your life. That's, that's the aesthetic experience. It's the, Rilke put it there for you. He, he spelled it out so you wouldn't miss it. You must change your life. That's what genuine being drawn to a genuine aesthetic object, something that a genuine attractor, a common good that we can collectively, together, socially seek after brings about that experience of being drawn into something deeper, a transformation where natality, the new, can come forth. If we're going to have any hope of finding our way through our crises, it will be because we gather around moments like that. We come together to think about what we're doing, who we want to be, where we want to go, what we want to become, and allow the power of something more than what's, what's present to transform and lure us into the future. Now, I think this is all bound up with what we were talking about, about nature and culture. The goal of a certain Anthropocene is to turn all of nature into what humans alone produce. And this goal is killing us. But it's hard to escape because once you've believed in the complete separation of nature and culture, there can be no escape. The aporia is a dead end without hope of something more. But why believe in that absolute separation of nature and culture? Why believe that they're absolutely separate? Think about it this way. Or let me ask you, maybe you'd like to think about it this way with me. That seemed seemed aggressive. Uh, (laughs) We might think about it this way. If the universe is not bifurcated into active agents of meaning on the one hand and stubborn facts on the other, then at least two strategies of approaching the universe open to view. Either we might see meaning itself as fundamentally illusory. This is a little bit of what we met already in Zizek. The sort of thing that dissolves once we rid ourselves of the illusions of our own superiority and accept alienation as ontology. Or we might alternatively see wisdom and intelligibility as ontologically basic and so expect to find the universe itself replete with a plenitude of meaning. In this respect the best of romantic anthropomorphizing might be saved. I asked at the outset, is this just romanticism? Is this just naive romanticism? But I think it's not. I think it's not a lapse into the pathetic fallacy to say that lilies have something like feelings and maybe even have feeling like ours. It's an imitation instead of nature's significance, which involves simultaneously the naturalizing of our own human responses to these things. The lily imbued with our response is also our response imbued with the entrancing strangeness of the lily. On such an account, we might expect to find within our own active human capacities a kind of participation in or expression of the ubiquitous meaning-making of the universe. 
what I'm suggesting is not an expression of anthropocentric, philosophical, or artistic arrogance. It's not another version of the human as special. Instead, I'm trying to say that in order to mean in some respects beyond the lily, we have to first attend to the lily's own utterances. Only then does our reading of the book of nature become also legitimately our own continued rewriting of it. And this is the greatest task that philosophy can play in the crises of our time. It can help us to renew a cosmological sense of education, of comportment to nature and to the meanings that nature might elicit from us. Not that nature might just give us, but the new meanings that nature might elicit from us in our collective political search for new ways of being. New ways of being together with one another, new ways of being together on this territory, on this terrestrial sphere, new ways of being together with the earth. The tradition of ancient education that Plato perhaps most fully articulated was founded upon a vision of the cooperation of education and politics, but not in the way that you might remember from your schooling. I remember hearing again and again that education makes us good, responsible citizens, In this sense, education is for politics, for the state, for the market to which the state is indexed, right? So you you probably remember that a little bit, being taught to be a good citizen. Uh, What what I'm trying to get at here, and what I think Arendt in her own way, and Barfield in his way, and Latour in his way, what I think they're all trying to get us at is a vision of a different kind of education, a different kind of philosophy that would be deeply political but wouldn't be for politics, Instead, it would be the condition of possibility for a real politics, which is very different. It's not serving politics. It's setting the stage in which a new politics, natality, the birth of something creative and new into the world could be possible. The ideal of paideia, education in the ancient world, wasn't about making education for politics. Instead, education for Plato which directly sought to counter the bifurcation of the world into nature and culture, aimed at the formation of political and philosophical virtue, just as the aim of politics was to produce virtuous citizens, right? Both education and politics, in other words, aimed at something beyond themselves, at the common good, which is disclosed to us through our encounters with one another and with the world. In this classical sense, it's not that education serves the policy. It's not merely that education serves the polis, but equally, if not more so, that politics serves education. And both seek to bring human culture into expressive, harmonious relationship with the cosmos. Education has to do with diachronic transformations toward the good through time. Politics, you might say, has to do with synchronic, life together, of finite creatures in space. And it's, as the cosmological, it's this cosmological vision that allowed education and politics to go together, this non-alienated vision that allowed this reciprocal relationship of, of them to one another, of philosophical inquiry and political action. Because the cosmological vision opened both collective society and individual realization to something beyond their own imminent ends. For this vision, the, uh, for this vision, the cosmological vision was a vision of the universe that, like Stiegler's aesthetic experience, opened out into mystery and transcendence, a vision that called men and women to look beyond the human as a merely social animal whose ultimate end was realized in human society or in the escape of human society from the earth. But rather, human ends sought to realize themselves in virtue, in virtuous relation to one another and to the world. Paradoxically, this vision of virtue that realizes itself in relationship to one another and to the world also sustained itself by aiming at an end outside of one another and outside of the world. But this isn't the out of this world that Latour describes, that's the escape from the common good. Rather, this was a vision of transcendence as the superlative mode of imminence, a vision of a relationship to the eternal that sustains and generates our sense of value, uh, our sense of the value of genuinely historical time, of the hope that human novelty and creation can produce something after the manner in which nature herself first produces, 
of the surprise of the genuinely creative rather than the spatialization of time, the collapse of politics to bureaucracy, and the erasure of the future by necessity, algorithm, management, or hopelessness. So what I've been trying to get at tonight, and I realize I haven't, I haven't provided answers, I hope I've opened up some questions and some paths through what otherwise seems like an aporetic, an aporia, where there are no paths, some ways for us to continue to seek to be together and to be with this world, and maybe even to prepare ourselves, like Plato thought about philosophy, for death, but a good death, because it's also the cultivation of genuine flourishing, of formation by the good, the true, and the beautiful that lie at the heart of reality, an education into self-realization that is not merely about human wellness or the satisfaction of shallow desires, but about the care for the self that is the condition of possibility for the care of the city and the friendship with all creatures in the earth that I think is the politics for which all of us genuinely hope. Thanks. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>